Welcome back to another episode of Oncology for the Inquisitive Mind with Michael and Josh, the only oncology podcast that has two Australian oncologists yammering on about nothing in particular. Today, we are going to start with a topic that I must be honest, Josh, I didn't know a whole heap about. I've obviously used the drugs and treated it, but uh, I was a little shaky on the evidence behind it, and that's neuroendocrine tumors. It's a heterogeneous group of tumors that are treated not with chemotherapy, as is often the case in oncology these days, but with somatostatin analogs and radionucleotide treatments. It's a very, a very different type of oncology. And a different type of oncology it is indeed, Michael. What a very toned down introduction to our episode. I'm a little sad. Yeah, no, I couldn't find any good quotes by ancient poets that I could obliquely link to neuroendocrine tumors. But I will say that we were originally just going to do one episode on this topic. And as Josh will reveal in a few moments, we soon realize that it is much more complex than we initially thought. There's lots of classifications, lots of debate, as we will come to in later episodes about what to use with some of the different types of neuroendocrine tumors. So this is going to be the first episode in a planned four-part series that will examine different types of neuroendocrine tumors because the treatment is different. Very well put. It's chaos was the word I would use. Chaos. Chaos is a is a very good description. You get a chaos emerald for each uh, each episode you listen to. To start off with the esoteric fact for our introduction, it will begin with Siegfried Obendorfer. I'm going to guess he was probably German or Austrian, but he coined the term carcinoide in 1907, meaning carcinoma-like small benign appearing tumor of the small intestine. As we now know, not all of these tumors are benign and a lot of them have the potential to metastasize. So I'm going to talk briefly about the background without getting into too much depth because it gets confusing and chaos will ensure. So the first thing to say is that neuroendocrine tumors can be well differentiated, moderately differentiated, or poorly differentiated, and they can occur anywhere within the body. They're rare. You might not have seen these type of cancers in your practice. The most common areas would include the GI tract at 48%, the lung for 25%, pancreas at 9%, but can essentially occur anywhere, including the breast, the prostate, the thymus, and the skin. Neuroendocrine tumors have the capability of producing hormones, such as serotonin, which can result in symptoms such as flushing, diarrhea, as well as other proteins such as chromogranin A, which serves as a biomarker of neuroendocrine tumors. Neuroendocrine tissues also tend to express somatostatin receptors on their cell surface, thus we can target that. When we talk about grades, and I'm only going to mention this briefly, it refers to the biological aggressiveness of this neoplasm. There are two main features we look at, the KI67, or that reproductive marker that we love so much in breast cancer, which is the percentage of cancer cells staining positive and a marker of cell proliferation. Then you have that mitotic rate, mitosis. It comes back to bite us. And we look at the number of mitoses per 10 high power microscopic fields. That's all good and well, Michael. But then the question we ask, how do you classify them? And I think I'm only going to discuss the low grade 
neuroendocrine tumors. Yeah, we talked about this ahead of time and knew that as we are very, very prone, shall we say, to going down rabbit holes and off on tangents, we would try and keep ourselves on the straight and narrow. It's going to be difficult. So only low-grade neuroendocrine tumors for this episode. We'll cover the rest later. And low-grade will be considered a well-differentiated tumor with less than two mitoses per 10 high-powered field and less than 3% of a KI-6. The nomenclature, which we've kind of spoken about briefly, carcinoid is no longer recommended as a term as it fails to convey malignant potential that most neuroendocrine tumors harbor. Secondary from that, neuroendocrine carcinoma is considered to be reserved for grade 3 tumors. There's a whole host of other things I could talk about, Michael, but I suspect I probably should stop it there. But one final point when we talk about diagnostic imaging, firstly, it's generally a CT or MRI. And CT test abdomen pelvis is probably the, the baseline you're going to do. And then you have to look at functional imaging. In Canada, they originally use indium labeled pantitreotide, which is the most commonly used radioactive tracer. And finally, We've moved forward and the newer radioisotopes on the block, which is the gadolinium or gallium, which is a positron emission that can also be linked to somatostatin analogs. And that's done through PET CT imaging. And then you've got the dotatate PET CT as well. And if you compare the gadolinium dotatate PET CT versus the conventional imaging, I believe the sensitivity was 96% versus 72% in the aforementioned imaging when we look at like look at treatment, if it's localized, you're going to go for surgery. If you're looking at adjuvant therapy, there's no evidence for chemotherapy after to improve surgery of neuroendocrine tumors. And then there's the metastatic cohort, which we can talk about now. Michael, do you want to take us off with the first article? Yes, thank you for that uh, restrained summary of low-grade neuroendocrine tumors. The first article we're going to talk about is an article that probably has my personal favorite uh, sobriquet. This is the clarinet study of lanreotide. In another lifetime, I too was a clarinetist. It is, something, it is a study that I enjoy reading. So the clarinet study, it is an older study by the standards of what we're going to discuss later in this series. It was published in the New England Journal of Medicine in 2014. At the time, going back almost 10 years at the uh, time of recording, uh, there were very few treatment options for well-differentiated gastroenteropancreatic net. So we're specifically looking at neuroendocrine tumors originating from the uh, abdominal viscera. Prior to the publication of this study, there was some evidence of symptomatic improvement and progression-free survival benefit with somatostatin analogs, that's lanreotide and the closely related but shorter-acting octreotide. However, there was only one study, one randomized study of 85 patients that examined lanreotide in patients with neuroendocrine tumor with a key 67, which is a proliferation index of less than 2%. Lanreotide is a longer-acting somatostatin analog that is given via in injection every four weeks. So it's good for patient convenience and it's good for, as we shall see, spoiler alert, long-term control of these low-grade neuroendocrine tumors. There were 204 patients in this study. 
they were randomised to receive either lanreotide, 120 milligrams every four weeks or matching placebo. One thing I love about this study, Josh, is that there were sealed envelopes that were kept by investigators that contained each patient's uh, randomization data. And these were to be broken upon progressive disease. It sounds very Cold War spy thriller thing, break this seal only in the event of an emergency, which I thought was cool. Seems a little bit archaic these days that they don't just stick it on a computer. Yes, it predated, it predated computers. Yes, showing my age again. The key inclusion criteria for clarinet were a locally advanced and unresectable or metastatic neuroendocrine tumour. The tumour biology had to be well or moderately differentiated. Now, a quick side note on this, and we won't go into too much detail, but this used an older classifications. So the WHO classifications that were published in 2010, as opposed to the more recent guidelines published in 2021. At this time, our understanding of neuroendocrine tumors was not as good as it is now. And so the presence of this entity that we'll come to in a later episode of well-differentiated grade three net, which is sort of straddles the boundary between well-differentiated low grade and poorly differentiated high grade was not deemed to be a significant entity. Patients had to have essentially assessed key 67 of less than 10% or a mitotic index of less than or equal to two mitoses per 10 high powered fields. So very typical classification for a low or intermediate grade, well-differentiated neuroendocrine tumor. They also excluded patients who had functioning tumors. So patients who had the typical carcinoid syndrome of non of hot flushing, of diarrhea. Patients with those sorts of tumors did not make it onto the study. Other key exclusion criteria were previous treatment with interferon, chemoembolization or chemotherapy within six months of study entry, or radionucleotide or somatostatin analog treatment given at any time. Patients also could not have major surgery related to their cancer within three months of randomization, and they also couldn't have a history of multiple endocrine neoplasia or MEN syndrome or other cancers. The primary endpoint was progression-free survival, with the secondary endpoints being PFS at 48 and 96 weeks, the time to tumor progression, the overall survival, quality of life, chromogranin A-level. Chromogranin is a fairly crude tumor marker used in neuroendocrine tumors. A lot of oncologists don't really believe in it, but it's frequently used as tumor markers are frequently used, which is to assess response, as well as other secondary endpoints were pharmacokinetic data and safety. In terms of the demographics, the median age was 62. And in terms of the origin of tumors, because we know that gastroenteropancreatic neuroendocrine tumors can come from a whole range of places. The most common site of origin was the pancreas at around 42%, the midgut at about 33%, and the hindgut at 11%. There were about 5% of patients in each group that had a unknown origin of their disease. The key 67 was less than 2% in about 70% of patients in both groups. So the majority of patients are going to have low-grade neuroendocrine tumors as opposed to moderate-grade. In terms of results... The progression-free survival in the original publication was not reached with lanreotide compared to 18 months with placebo. 65% of patients with lanreotide were alive without progression at 24 months. So two-thirds of patients are making it to two years without a change in their disease. The hazard ratios were consistent across tumor types. It is worth noting the pancreatic subgroup did cross one. We are dealing with relatively small numbers here, but it is worth noting because pancreatic neuroendocrine tumors are probably one of the more common subtypes. The benefit was 
consistent, however, regardless of key 67 or the degree of hepatic uh, volume replacement. So if you've got a tumor that is extensively spread throughout the liver, which some of these tumors are at the time of diagnosis or at the time of treatment, commencement, you are still going to get a benefit from lanreotide. Patients were twice as likely to be alive and without progression at 48 weeks and more than three times more likely to be alive and without progression at 96 weeks. The study uh, went for 96 weeks. And so at the time of closure, there was a clear benefit for lanreotide. 42% of patients had a greater than or equal to 50% reduction in their chromogranin A levels, again, continuing the theme of response. The best thing about lanreotide is and Josh, please correct me if your experience is different. But in the patients that I've given lanreotide to, it is fairly well treated. I had a lady a couple of weeks ago who said that it was almost like she wasn't getting treated at all. And that is reinforced by this study. The most common adverse events in the intervention arm were diarrhea at 26%, abdominal pain at 14%, and cholelithiasis at 10%. There was also no differences in the quality of life scores. Now, one thing that was interesting about this clarinet study was that they ran a subsequent study, an open-label extension study, after it was completed. So this open-label extension study, or OLE study, was commenced after the initial benefit in terms of PFS of lanreotide was established. This was conducted to assess the long-term safety and efficacy of lanreotide because it was a fairly novel agent back then and enrolled patients who had either stable disease or in the case of patients who received placebo in the original study had progression. 42 patients continued on the lanreotide, effectively just continuing the same treatment that they had previously, whereas 47 patients commenced lanreotide after placebo. Was there a crossover in this trial? This trial is effectively one big crossover. So it was looking at both patients continuing lanreotide beyond the originally mandated 96 weeks, but also for those patients who had progressed on lanreotide or on placebo, I should say, giving them the opportunity to have lanreotide. So it was effectively a study studying the effect of crossover. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. I mean, who would have thought that being on placebo, you would progress? Exactly. They also included patients who had stable disease on placebo, but there were only a few of those. The median duration of treatment was 59 months and the results... I will say are a little bit confusing. What I will say is that the progression-free survival in the patients who were continuing lanreotide, so patients from the original study, it was interesting to look at the separate tumor locations. So for pancreatic neuroendocrine tumor, the progression-free survival was 29.7 months. For patients with midgut tumors, the progression-free survival was 61 and a half months. Now we're dealing with even smaller numbers now because about half of the patients in each arm from the original study or less than half of each arm from the original study were able to get onto this OL study, but it is interesting to see a suggestion of midgut tumors being more responsive to treatment and potentially less aggressive. Michael, do you know why there's more response to the midgut tumors rather than the pancreatic? Is there a small cell component? Like, did they investigate this anomaly of location? They didn't investigate it as far as I could tell, Josh. And I suspect that the numbers were probably too small to draw any wide ranging conclusions from this, but it was just interesting to note. So, so the progression-free survival for patients who were on 
placebo initially was 19 months. So it is also interesting and it probably relates to patients who progressed on placebo having a higher burden of disease, potential uh, neuroendocrine differentiation or transformation into a higher grade tumor, but these patients didn't do as well. But the takeaway from the OLE study was that yes, you can continue to use lanreotide beyond the original 96 weeks in the clarinet study. The safety signals were consistent uh, as per the core study and that's pretty much it like so lanreotide is these days very much used as the first line treatment for patients with low to intermediate grade uh, well differentiated neuroendocrine tumors that are not amenable to resection there is some debate and as we've said a couple of times, we'll get to this in a separate episode, but there is some debate regarding lanreotide's place in the well-differentiated high-grade space. But nevertheless, it is effective and well-tolerated and should be offered as first-line treatment in most patients. And in the NCCN guidelines for neuroendocrine tumors, that is exactly what the recommendation is, that things, uh, more exotic things such as radionucleotide tests, sunitinib, everolimus, they only come into account when patients have progressed off lanreotide. But speaking of radionucleotide treatment, Josh, this is the new and exciting product from our colleagues over at the Nuclear Medicine and Theranostics Department. So why don't you talk to us about PRRT? I thought you'd never ask, Michael. I don't know if it's that novel anymore, but we're going to talk about the net study and the NETA study is a phase three of 177 lutetium dotatate for mid-gut neuroendocrine tumors. You guys might remember one of our previous episodes in prostate cancer and I suspect they're jumping from cancer to cancer looking for a protein and trying to target it. This is a little bit older than the, the prostate one but it's still an interesting discussion point of trial design but also outcomes. So the background as we know mid-gut well we now know because we talked about it mid-gut which is Degenoelium and proximal colon it commonly metastasize to the mesentery, peritoneum, and liver, and are frequently associated with carcinoid syndrome. The midgut is the most common GI neuroendocrine tumor, and the five-year survival is less than 50% own those with metastatic disease. First line, as Michael already stole the show, is a somatostatin analog for control of the hormone secretion and the tumor growth. There was no standard second line options evident at the time of research. This particular treatment dates back to 1992, where DuckTales was on Disney and, you know, I'm going to assume Britney Spears had just started her extravaganza Maybe not. I don't know exactly. But anyway, she Taylor was, Swift was three years old. Taylor Swift was three years old. She was born in Josh 1989. Josh was three years old. <laughs> We're going to edit that because uh, I'm a mature individual. Either way, <laughs> in 1992, the radio-labeled somatostatin therapy had shown promise for advanced disease. So in summary, like all the Theranostic articles, it's treatments, it's targeted form of systemic radiotherapy allowing for the delivery of radionucleotides directly to the tumor cells. So initially they found efficacy with the INDTPA octreotide, but it's been more promising looking at lutetium dotatate octreotide. So lutetium-177 is a beta and gamma emitting radionucleotide with a maximum particle range of two millimeters and a half life of 160 hours. So this is great. This little line, if you don't remember anything of this study, is that the nice thing about lutetium is that it's only got a very 
small range. So it's quite small in the area that it will kill and therefore hopefully fewer toxicities. So the methods for this trial is an international multi-center phase three trial conducted at 41 centers in eight countries. Inclusion criteria, a good ECOG performance status, biopsied mid-gut neuroendocrine tumors that had metastasized or a locally advanced inoperable and histologically confirmed. Well-differentiated histological features included KI67 of less than 20% and tumors were assessed based on their KI67 and they defined low grade as 0 to 2%, intermediate grade as 3 to 20% and high grade of greater than 20%. Target lesions were selected on the CT and MRR. The classic exclusion criteria, including you know, electrolyte derangement, high bilirubin, coagulation issues. Interesting they've mentioned chemotherapy within 12 weeks of randomization. What we know now is that chemotherapy isn't particularly beneficial, but the three-month wait is an interesting thing. And I was wondering, Michael, do you have any comments on that? Well, I know that a lot of trials do mandate a washout period for previous treatment, but I think what they might be talking about is things like sunitinib or there's a combination with doxorubicin that I think was used more in the States, potentially around the time that the study was recruiting. Patients might have actually been getting chemotherapeutic or uh, tyrosine kinase treatment prior. Quite possible. Wise words once again from Michael. So the trial design, it was one-to-one, it was open-label. Letitium dotatate at a dose of 7.4 GBQ every eight weeks or the octreotate LAR, which would be given every four weeks, which was the control arm. The endpoints, the primary endpoint was progression-free survival of documented disease progression and multiple secondary endpoints, including objective response rate, overall survival, safety, and toxicity. As a summary, 221 patients underwent randomization, 110 oh, sorry, apologies, 110 in the letitium dotatate and 110 in the control group. Michael, I think it's 111 in the letitium if we've had two 221 patients, but excuse my mathematical. Excellent maths there, Josh. If you look at the trial design, most patients had ileum disease, followed by small intestines across both the arms. And predominance in this case was interesting. More men in the letitium arm, more women in the control group as well. Predominant sites of disease, liver, lymph nodes, followed by mesentery. So what they found, the rate of, this is the initial analysis, the rates of progression-free survival at 20 months was 65.2% in the letitium dotatate versus 10.8% in the control group. You're already seeing something uh, pretty spectacular right now. The median progression-free survival in the control group was 8.4 months and not reached in the letitium dotatate arm with a hazard ratio of 0.21, referencing a 79% lower risk of disease recurrence in the letitium dotatate. If you look at the forest plot, and I love a forest plot, every single component confirms that letitium dotatate is better than the control arm. The interim analysis of the overall survival, so it was interim, so it wasn't powered, showed an estimated risk of death was 60% lower in the letitium dotatate arm than the control group with a hazard ratio of 0.4, p-value of 0.004, but not statistically significant as per the trial design. When you look at the partial response, 17% in the intervention arm and 3% in the control arm. And if you look at the objective response number with response was 18 versus 
three. If you look at the toxicities, because that's something we're probably wanting to know about, occurred in 86% of the lutetium dotate and 31% in the control arm. Lutetium dotate, predominantly nausea, vomiting, fatigue, asthenia, abdominal pain, and diarrhea, mostly grade one or grade two, Mikey. And in the control arm, you had fatigue and asthenia as well. Interestingly, grade three and grade four adverse events were similar in the two groups, and there was more evidence of myelosuppression from a neutropenia, thrombocytopenia, and lymphopenia cohort representing 1, 2, and 9%. So as a summary of this first article, it confirms the following. So 79% lower risk of death based on progression-free survival. The estimated PFS at 20 months was 65.2 versus 10.8%, and the median progression-free survival is 8.4 months in the control group. Let's jump across to that update, Mikey, which is the ASCO journal in 2021. Sorry, Josh, before you jump with such athleticism uh, over to the ASCO update, I might have missed it, but was there any data on the, the amount of previous treatment that patients had had? in the study because practically speaking this is something that we come to or something that we explore as a treatment option after patients have had one or two treatments I love it when I dangle something and you pick up on it, Mikey. So thank you for doing that. So approximately 80% of patients had undergone previous surgical resection in the lutetium arm and nearly half of the patients had undergone a previous form of systemic therapy other than a somatostatin analog therapy. So 41% of the lutetium group and 45% of the control group. Which is good because it means the study is reflecting results and very impressive results that can potentially be replicated in real life. We're not sort of saying you can use this in first line, but it's only approved in second line where, as we know, the benefit might be lesser. And I think that comes to the background of the trial, Mark, or where it's patients who had progressive disease during first line somatostatin analog therapy, and there's limited therapeutic options. So that's why they're looking at what's going to actually be next for these patients. That's my interpretation. Very happy to be corrected. On an update, the interesting thing for this trial, first of all, it allowed crossover. So patients who progressed on the control arm jumped across to the intervention arm. The PFS, so progression-free survival, Michael, was an astounding hazard ratio of 0.18. Oh, wow. At this point in time. 0.18. That's great. In advanced progressive, well-differentiated, somatostatin receptor-positive mid-gut neuroendocrine tumors. So, so the way this trial worked, and I didn't clarify this, they had 18 months of treatment, and then they all went on to follow up, right? 86.3% of the intervention arm and 86.6% of the control arm went on to follow up. The final analysis, which was five years from randomization, showed a median overall survival of 48 months in the lutetium dotate arm versus 36.3 months in the control arm with a hazard ratio of 0.84. Boom, except it was not statistically significant and two patients had developed myelodysplastic syndrome. Oh, you just had to build us up to tear us down, didn't you, Josh? Exactly. But here's the kicker, right? It's probably a little bit convoluted, this actual overall survival, being the fact that there was they allowed crossover and numerically you see quite a significant overall survival improvement where there's not a lot of other great treatments. So it's not as if it's like, I can give you something that's going to get rid of your cancer longer term. And the question here that you have to ask is like, are you going to withhold something that has such great progression-free survival? The answer to that point is definitely no, unless you're uh, would happy to go against that, Mikey. No, no, I think that it's definitely something that should be 
explored. And I think in practical terms, we start having discussions with the nuclear medicine team. And in Victoria, there's only one site that does PRT. So we sort of send it over to them. And we have start having those discussions as soon as patients progress off lanreotide. That's it. It's all about the discussions of what's next and what can you sort of give as another option and potentially one that doesn't have particularly terrible toxicities as well. No, absolutely. And I think it is a case of really trying to uh, put your best foot forward, put your best treatment forward. And lanreotide has the best evidence, even though, and I didn't mention this uh I couldn't find any overall survival data. The assumption, given there's a significant PFS benefit, is that it does improve overall survival. And there very well might be overall survival out there. Please get in touch. If you happen to know that off the top of your head, you would put lanreotide first and then with a hazard ratio of less than 0.2, I think you've got to talk about PRT once lanreotide stops working. That's it, Michael. But then comes the question, with neuroendocrine tumors that are well differentiated, what are the later lines? That is an excellent segue, Josh. And unfortunately, it's going to have to be a tidbit that we leave dangling for another week because that is our next episode on later line therapy in well-differentiated neuroendocrine tumors. We'll talk about sunitinib and we will talk about everolimus. So that's next week. And we hope that you tune in again for the second part of our series on neuroendocrine tumors. Can't wait. See you then, Mikey. for listening to Oncology for the Inquisitive Mind. You'll find previous episodes on our website along with weekly posts, resources and links to our Twitter and LinkedIn pages. Check it out at inquisitiveonc.com. That's inquisitiveonc.com. <laughs>